Welcome to The Journey, where we are going to talk about a lifestyle with dogs and throw in a few life lessons along the way. Whether you're a hound hunter, a bird dog enthusiast running setters, pointers, retrievers, or a flat-out running dog junkie, this podcast is for you. I am your host, Heath Hyatt, a certified law enforcement canine trainer with over three decades of personal and professional training and handling experience. It's time for me to pay it forward. So grab your leads, lace up those boots, and come and join me on this lifelong process of teaching, training, and learning called The Journey. Do you like to be outdoors like I do? Hunting, fishing, hiking? If so, Onyx is the app for you. I've been a loyal Onyx user since 2013. It's the one app I can honestly say I use daily. While hunting, I know where I'm at at all times. I mark trails, feeding, bedding areas, and the list goes on. When I'm traveling, I use it to pre-scout all the new places that I'm blessed to hunt. While out west hiking Yellowstone, I knew exactly where every trail went and the difficulty of each one. And here's a secret. I even use it to mark my favorite fishing spots. It's been a game changer at work. I've used it numerous times to get in touch with property owners. I even landed MedFlight one time in the middle of nowhere using the GPS coordinates. Onyx has so many great features and tools, you can literally use it for everything. It is by far the best mapping app on the market. And hey, it's Houndsman XP approved. So get started with Onyx today using HXP20 and know where you stand. It is Wednesday, and you know what that means. That means there's going to be a new episode of The Journey dropping. So, <clears throat> before we get started, uh, we, we got to get some information out to you. Uh, the Houndsman XP has created its own network, and it's going to be called the Extreme Performance Outdoor Network. So what does this mean for the listeners? If you guys really enjoy listening to The Journey and The Houndsman XP and All Mixed Up and AMA, um, The Dogmen, you're going to have to go to wherever you get your podcast, whether it be Apple or Spotify. And I don't know where else everybody goes. That's kind of I go to Apple, so I'm not sure. But on March the 1st, we are going to be switching from the Sportsman's Empire to the Extreme Performance Outdoor Network. So you're going to have to go in to where you get it and type in the show that you want to listen to. If you want to listen to The Journey, you need to type in The Journey with Heath Hyatt. Um, there's a lot of other podcasts called The Journey. Make sure you put it in, you put With Heath Hyatt in there and it'll pop up. Once it pops up, you can like and subscribe just like you did in the first time when you started following. And it'll pop up every Wednesday when we drop a new episode and you're good to go. It's just a little transition there. Um, you just have to type it in your search bar. It won't take you 10 seconds to do it, and we appreciate it. Once I find figure out which um, picture or what my background is going to be for the podcast, which I'm not sure yet what I'm going to use, I will post that on my reels. I'll post it on my stories, and you can go, and that, po that picture will be attached with it, so it'll be self-explanatory. So March 1st, everything's coming off the Sportsman's Empire. It's going on to the Houndsman XP Network, which is going to be Extreme Performance Outdoor Network. And we're just going to keep rolling. So let's get this one started. Thank you guys for following us on the journey. All right. The journey is back at it. And... We're going to have a pretty familiar voice on. He was on a month or so ago. Um, we talked about some legislation, and we're moving on from that. We're taking a break from the legislation part. But I got uh, Doug DeVos back on from Vermont. Uh, once Doug and I finished up our podcast, we got the chit-chatting back and forth over text, and we left a lot on the table. And, 
you know, one of the things that we're going to hit on real quick right here before we get started is, um, you know, when you have guys that's got years and years and years of experience, and I've always said this, I, I say it when I go to canine seminars, I tell it to the classes that I teach, um, like every opportunity I get is any information you can get is like a buffet. And when we go to a buffet to eat, you pick out what you like and you take it back and you eat. And there's all all kinds of other options there. And I always tell my guys, and I do it myself, because several several classes I've set through, I've set through them multiple times. And the goal when I go back and reset through it is either to um, kind of regenerate that information or I'll pick up a tidbit that I missed the last time because I was so engrossed in the information they was providing. So <clears throat> it's like a buffet. And one of the things that Doug and I were just having a conversation about, and we're, we're going to talk about it now, is podcast. Um, Doug, I want you to tell your experience, what you were just telling me, and what 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 it has changed for you. Yeah, well, uh, again, I appreciate coming on again, and we were we were just talking. I uh, I never listened to podcasts ever before you and I had done one, and um, my work. I'm I'm working an hour and twenty minutes from home, and now I'm listening to podcasts on the way to work and home, and uh, you know you, you even hear about the new ones coming up like uh, the one you had just done on artificial breeding, which I have a lot of interest in. Um, you know, I make sure you get to listen to them and you hear, hear everybody's, everybody's, uh, you know, personal opinions and, and things they've gone through and things they've done. It might save you a lot of trouble. Yeah. And while we're on the AI real quick. So, uh, Guys, I've had a lot of um, messages sent my way about the AI process. Um, it seemed like it um, kind of struck with people that were interested. So one of the things that Aaron and I did not talk about, and I actually text her just to make sure that I was getting the correct information, is what does it cost for the insemination part to the female if you do it surgically? Now, for her vet clinic... It's going to run you three to three fifty, um, and that's if you don't do that's without the estrogen test to make sure that they're where they're supposed to be. So three to three fifty. So total total everything. You get the dog collected. <coughs> excuse me. You get the dog collected, and then to have the, the female um, bred later on is going to run you about seven hundred dollars. Um, and I don't know. I've never bought a straw. I don't know what it cost. Um, but anyway, I feel like that you could recoup at, you know, with a pup or two. So anyway, I wanted to put that out there before we got too deep in it, that um, I just, I talked to her and found out the, the back end of that process. So everybody kind of has an idea where we're at. So uh, 450 for getting him collected in, in that average, I can't remember the exact numbers, um, 430 some maybe, and then three to 350 to have the female in simulate. Uh, inseminated surgically okay um <clears throat> so that's that back to the podcast stuff i've always said this um it's free information and i love to read and podcasts have kind of taken taken over for me because like like you did doug um i i was spending 12 hours a day not literally but you know 10 hours a day in my car riding around and the radio stations just play the same songs in a loop every other hour. So you get tired of that. So I started listening to talk radio and I kind of was like, man, I feel like my, I'm like, I'm like my dad because my dad, he, if he had the radio on, it was some news channel. And then, you know, podcast came along and I started listening to podcast and, um, I really, I, I, I like them. Um, I still listen to them. I, I probably listen to two or three a day, somewhere in that, that realm. Um, and I listen to a lot of different podcasts, not just on, you know, dogs and training. I listen to a lot of canine. Well, that, well, that would be canine training. I listen to a lot of leadership stuff. I, I listen to um, all types of podcasts. So it's free information. It don't cost you anything. You hit a button on your phone, you subscribe, and you listen to what you want to, and you don't have to listen to what you don't. 
I was just saying, I was telling one of my workers that rides with me, I said, if I, if I had something like this 25 years ago, you know, I, I grew up with a lot of old houndsmen, you know, guys that started even before telemetry was out, you know, I, you could ask those guys questions and stuff, but it's not like listening to a podcast, you know, you're getting everyone's opinion from different states and different hunting conditions and different dogs. And if you're open-minded and willing to try something incorporate it into, like you said, and I think that works in every situation, work and hounds, if you're willing to incorporate certain things to make your situation the way you want it, you, you can do really well. Yeah. And of course I've said this before, you know, <clears throat> I, I was like you, Doug. I was taught under the old school method, a lot of compulsion. And I use compulsion in my the language for my law enforcement training is basically we made the dogs do what we wanted them to do. And, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have I, the dogs that were naturals. You had a better relationship with because you, you didn't have you weren't hard handed or you weren't being tested as much. And the dogs that that fit the other role i mean you didn't have a relationship like you know that i have with my dogs now and it was 2013 i hate to say that you know just you know 11 years ago that you know sitting in a class in st louis missouri that like it's like somebody smacked me with a shovel i'm like gosh man i've been doing this wrong for so long and then once i started trying to put it into practical application and i saw the benefits of it I mean, I, I mean, I felt like an idiot. Like I really did. Like <laughs> I, I've always tried to, cause there's a lot of people around here that, you know, they have a dog issue. They'll ask me and I'm no, I'm no dog whisperer by no means, but I've been around dogs my whole life. And I I've learned over the years, an old guy told me once, he says, you ain't got to break their bones. You got to change their mind. And, uh, it's, it's pretty simple sounding, but it makes a lot of sense, you know? And I think dogs, you can think about it and be complicated, but it, it can be really simple too. You know, if you, if you try and think how a dog would, would normally would fix an issue or anything like that. Yeah. And I mean, just learning some of the principles that I've learned, you know, dogs are always going to do what's best for them, you know, and if you can motivate them. You know, and I, like I said, we, I use a lot of food in my training process, a lot of food. Uh, in fact, I'm going to start dropping some reels and some little short videos with this litter I got now. Go ahead. I know you want to say something. <laughs> I had a hundred questions for you, too, and we probably didn't get time enough. <laughs> you know, just as far as picking your brain on stuff, what you've come on to as far as the canine training versus the hound, if I'm sure lots of things work, maybe some don't. Um, but do you think in your personal opinion is is food is food the the best way you found or, or i mean do you still do you still use electricity at all um even with the canines or obviously your hounds i'm sure but um, yeah absolutely it, um food is just a motivator and if you look at anything and i can't quote him exactly but bart bellen is like the you know the the godfather of nipopo uh, which is negative, positive, positive training. And you look at the um, operant conditioning, which is the four quadrants. We won't get into all that. But, I mean, Bart says that, you know, you can motivate a dog to do something. But to make sure that it's reliable, there has to be correction. I'm not, I will not say, I, I'm not a 100%, you know, positive, positive, positive. You, you just can't be. Not in our field any, anyway. Um, but I, I do use a lot of food. Uh, to answer that question, um, it's dog specific. Most of my hounds um, are food motivated. Uh, <clears throat> you'll get a dog, you'll kind of get an outlier here every, every now and then that the dog really mm -hmm. could care less. Um, one of the things that I found very unique <clears throat> is when you have that dog um, that really don't care about human interaction. Uh, my my duchy that I'm running right now um he don't care to be petted. In fact, yeah. he don't even want you to pet him half the time. Um, the only I'm sure time he hunt, I'm sure he hunts for himself too. He does. Um, he, I don't mean to interrupt you. I just I have a picture of a hound on the wall 
and uh, I sold her. You know, and she was a unbelievable. She one dog, one dog deal. If if that's what you needed, but she didn't care to be petted. She didn't. She hunted for herself. Mm-hmm. More my type of dog. I like to interact with dog the dogs and. If you fed her and took her hunting, she wouldn't care if she saw you. Yeah. I mean, he's he. the only time he wants interaction with me is when I have that toy in my hand. That's his motivator. That's his drive. But, yeah, man, he he don't – like, I can go out here in the pen right now and go to pet him, and he'll shake his head for me to get away from him. Like, he don't care. Mm-hmm. But, anyway, but that's one of the things that, that um, I found unique is that you will you will find that dog that just is just wants to do its job. And it don't need a lot of praise and motivation and stuff to do it because it's just that natural. It's got that, that genetic code is so deep that um, we're basically standing in the way. Um, and I, I think, I think you see that more now. <clears throat> I think people are less, we called it kennel blind. You know, everybody had to breed to their own stuff, but you see nowadays guys really trying to breed best to the best mm-hmm. in their opinions. And, I think you, I think on average you get a better litter, Yeah. you know, be, over the last few years, you know, people branching out to other, other dogs. While we're talking about litters, there's two things I want to hit on um, and I'll get your input. Uh, Chris did an AMA uh, last Friday and he was talking about, you know, the litters making it eight out of 10 and two out of 10. And, you know, we, we need to be breeding the best to the best. And that, that doesn't guarantee they turn out. And I know people talk about this. I know it's probably been hit on, but I want to drive it home is like putting the dogs in the hands of people that are going to give the dog opportunity and give them a fair shake and put them in the woods. Absolutely. That will make or break a dog. If you, Absolutely. if you send it to Billy Bob down the road that hunts three weekends out of the year you know, you can't expect greatness from that. Yeah. Um, and I think the uptick in litters being successful is because people like you and Kirk and the, the guys that are raising some of these dogs are making sure that their dogs go to people that they trust that will give them what they need, give them the, every opportunity. And if the dog's two years old at that point and it doesn't make it, then, okay, it may not just made the cut. And there are dogs that do that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, the, uh, the last litter I had, I, I give a couple of them away and I, I didn't, I didn't breed to sell them anyways, but I knew they were going to good hunting people, you know, guys that hunt four or five, six times a week, mm-hmm. you know, that, that makes dogs, um, they, they have way better chance than somebody that hunts and understands dogs. And, you know, even, even down to the fact for me is, they're good. They treat dogs good. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody wanted one of mine and I knew they didn't take good care of dogs, they ain't getting one. That's exactly right. Yeah. But, uh, no, for sure. If I feel the same, if, if they go to a good hunting home, you know, you, you, the odds of that litter being eight out of eight or whatever is a lot higher. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. It's, it's going to be. And I've been like the last, the last, I've had three litters over the last, two years and um the last litter the b litter you, you guys heard me talk about it. i still have all of them but one and yep. the litter before that uh there was eight and i've got two of those um and they're all they were all placed in guys that hunt with me um yeah pretty much um all two of them two of them i had to let go that w- did not go to hunters and it was an accidental litter um, and they're they're the two that probably is going to make the superstars that went to to pet homes. And then the litter before that, the A litter, uh, of course, they're all within. You know, I've got two of those two, and then you know Wesley's <coughs> Wesley's got one, Forrest has got one, and Clayter's got one. So yeah, I, I haven't um, haven't I've never advertised or anything like that. But I've tried to put them where I can keep an eye on them and see what they're doing. Yep. Um, yep. And people that I know is going to hunt, like you said, I'm, they're going to hunt them. Yeah, this this last litter, there was eight, and um, I've heard I've heard back good on all of them so far, except uh, to be quite honest, mine was young last fall, real young, 
five six months and i had i had enough dogs we have a six dog per permit rule mm-hmm. so you know and i like to switch them out and stuff but i just i had too many to take her for her age um but the mother her litter mates are all started nice and yeah. uh back to the litter so i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you guys yep. um a mistake that i made and i will i will I, we had i had this conversation last night with uh, one of my one of my good friends wesley um 20 years ago I mean, a lot of times I'm riding down the road and, you know, you drive past that that dump spot or you die, dry, dump, like where you dump the dogs, um, you know, or that curve where you call a bear, you know, in that hollow or something like that. And you have these memories. And he and I were talking last night. And I mean, man, the dogs that I've ruined, man, I'll, I'll, I'll own it. I have ruined a lot of good dogs. I have sold or given away dogs that I ought to have my butt kicked for because I didn't have the patience. Um, I I was short-fused, uh, all the things that you're not supposed to be. I, I, I fit that mold, or did. <clears throat> and we were talking last night, and he was like, yeah, that's definitely not you now, but I remember so-and-so. But back to the litter. So I'm going to tell you a, a mistake that I made with the bee litter. So those pups are just now turning six months old. So at... It was about four, four and a half, somewhere in there, four, four months old, I would say. Um, I thought the kids had been doing a little bit more lead work with them. And so anyway, I ended up um, having a coon and I went and turned it loose. And the pups, man, they were like all four of them were doing exactly what you want to see, you know, they're they're gamey, they're hunting, they're working. And so Maddie and I were up in the field with them and I called them and I put them on double leads. I put two on one lead and two on the other. And if you guys and I've seen it in the police world and like it kind of smacked me in the face up here when I did this, they shut down. And when I say shut down, I mean, it didn't matter what was going on. The world could have been blowing up. There could there could have been there could have been a bear sitting five foot from them and they could have cared less because mentally the pressure that was put on when I say pressure they had the leads on them they were tied up to a fence post there was two of them tied together which I never do um, two of them tied together they they had not been prepared for that step yet um, and I will say I. I'm a little bit behind with I, I was <laughs> I was a little bit behind with these on the lead, but I thought the kids had been working them more. But it shut them down, and it shut them down to the point where they were flipping out. Everybody's seen the pup dogs on the end of the lead flipping, flopping, running backwards, squalling like you know a banshee. And so I went up and I turned them loose, and they all hightailed it back to the house. And when I say hightailed it. I mean, run like a scalded dog to the house. Um, so that's five, six hundred yards back to the house. And three of them recouped pretty quickly. Um, they were a little bit lurry of me, but I could get my hands on them, whatever. I had one. And he, it took me almost a month. Now, guys, listen to what I'm telling you. I put him in, an, in a situation that he was not he was not prepared for it was uncomfortable and it was a shock to his system it shocked all of them it took me almost a month to get my hands back on him where he would trust me Mm. so at four months old one bad experience because this is what it was one bad experience will set you back for months and I, i mean i'm a professional like i train dogs for a living and when I seen what was going on, I tried to stop it and reset. The pups weren't having any part of it. Um, it took me a couple days with the other ones where, like, they, did, they didn't want me catching them. I mean, that's what happened. They did not want me catching them because it was so traumatizing that they got tied up on a lead to a fence post, and they had not been done like that before. Um, 20 years, 15 years ago, I would have probably got rid of every one of them at that point in time. Me I would, too. I would, I'd have sent them packing. <laughs> I'd have said, "Come and come and get them." Yeah, but I, through my training and experience, I'd seen what was happening. I'm like, mm, "Yep, 
bad. Let them go. They got to the house. I I was very patient. They're they're four months old. I'm not in a rush. And and Briggs, which is the one that it took me almost a month to gain his trust back. And I mean, just within the last couple of weeks, um, like he, I'd go out in the yard, have him loose in the yard. All them pups would be running, and he'd be right there with me. Like he'd be right within hands reach. But if I reached down to touch him, gone, gone. Like I'm out of here, buddy. You ain't catching me and doing that to me again. Um, so I had I, I had to take a step backwards, um, build that trust again. Didn't do anything else but try to build trust with them. And I mean, of course, now I've got them doing everything else. Um, but you know, just I'm just trying to give you guys a little bit of insight to some of the things that I used to make mistakes on, and it was a mistake now, but I know how to fix it. Then I didn't. I just got rid of, it. like you said, y'all out of here. You're out of here. Um, so. I just wanted to share that with you guys. If you see your dogs, and when, like I said, when you see them shut down, that they go into survival mode. That's what's happening in their brain is survival, and nothing else matters. Um, a behavior that you'll see out of this, now these pups, well, no, actually, this did happen. One of them did. When they go into survival mode, and you go to reach down at them, and they bite you, that's because they're survive. They're trying to survive. Yeah. They have no clue what's going on. Um, and one of them did that and I didn't get mad. I didn't get, I didn't lose my temper. I, I didn't even think nothing about it. I'm like, okay, okay yeah, I got to get him out of this because as soon as he comes out of red and it took him, it probably took him an hour that evening. But I just want to share that with you guys that a mistake that I made with the litter that I'm raising right now. And if you see that pro, if you see that happen, take a step back, reset, don't pressure them. You, you know, whatever took place, you know, like I said, this was a trust issue with them. It's me reaching down and grabbing them and putting them on a lead and confining them when that's not what they were used to. They had that, you know, it, it was it was a, it was a mess. It was a mess. And I've like I said, I've worked through it and we're past it now. But you ever had anything like that happen? Um, I mean, I've had a couple dogs that were standoffish, not maybe because of the leash thing or. But it, it takes a lot of patience. And like you said, 20 years ago, that dog would just be down the road. You know, it takes a lot of patience and time, you know, if a dog goes through something traumatic like that to, you know, they, like you said, they need to trust you again. Yeah. And Matt, Maddie, Maddie was with me and, you know, I was glad that she got to witness that because we, me and her talk, we spent a lot of time together in the woods together and, you know, it, it, I mean, we were walking back down to the house and she was like, I can't believe that. And we've raised, you know, she's she's 14. We've raised a pile of dogs in for her 14 years. Um, and she'd never seen that happen before. And it was kind of yeah. like, I can't believe like putting them on a leash. I said, Maddie, they weren't ready. You know, we talk about that here on this podcast all the time about training and foundation and baby steps. They we're not ready. I put them into an environment for prey drive, like bam, bam, bam. And then I shocked her system and they couldn't handle it at four months old. So yeah. uh, mistake I made, if you guys do that, like I said, just be patient because it can be fixed. Um, it may take a little time. And like I said, it set me back like Briggs. It set me back with him. Like he's my buddy now. Like I made yeah. extra sure to, um, rebuild that foundation with him like i took an extra step to make sure because i don't want this happening in the woods where you can't get your hands on them you know we've all had dogs or somebody in our hunting group's got dogs you can't we call them a coyote man like they gone <laughs> they gone yeah yeah no i my dog's got the handle i don't usually fish for much just <laughs> hook them at the tree and get out of sight you know they've got a handle but in your experience mine personally uh, i've had better luck with uh, females maturing quicker mm -hmm. uh, as young dogs and i think they they do in in humans mm -hmm. but um i think I'll, I'll get a younger dog as a female to start and advance a little quicker than a male i've had better luck with that anyways i and i i've got some good males too but uh, yeah, it does seem like know, the females but, mature quicker. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So. But I've also, I've, I think in the past, I've I've pushed a young dog harder than they they should. They almost 
not I wouldn't say lose interest, but I think you can over I think you can over hunt them when they're coming on. Mm-hmm. And and uh years ago not knowing that you think the dog just don't care for it anymore, you know, but you leave them home a few days and you know things like that. I, I've noticed myself. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, and you've heard, i tell you what you're doing and people don't get this. I mean, like I said, it takes, sometimes it's a sophisticated process and people don't take the time to analyze it and look at it. Um, I'm with you, Doug. I, I don't like to, until my dogs are a year old, um, I'm not hunting them that much on bear, on bear. I think mm-hmm. coon is a different story. <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> my little sassy female uh, she, you know, she was six, eight months old, 10 months old, I think during bear season. And I mean, I hunted her maybe six or eight times during December and training season. I had her out four or five times and she's so like, she's showing me so much. It's just hard to keep her in the kennel. Like it's hard, but yep. I, I want guys to realize this, Doug, you putting that pup up, are you seeing that it's it's kind of shutting down or it's it's not act it's not performing at the level that it was? Hey, it's got this ability, you see it. But then you keep pushing, 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 and it's not mature. You put that dog in the pen for a little bit, you're building frustration. And when you build frustration, you're building drive if it's if it's right. Um and when you take that dog back out two months later or three months or whatever, however long you put it up, you're like Bam, where'd you come from? Because that dog's ready to go. I I had a dog and this is this is a true story, that same dog I just told you that hunted for herself and I I sold for she, she real good money. She was a real bear dog. Her first year that going into that fall, she, on a pile of bears, um, but she'd come off a couple and she was catching a lot by herself and, but I was still frustrated cause she was coming off, but you can't expect a dog to catch all the time alone and, and be on the ground with bears and, and not get sick of it at some point. And I, I considered culinary, you know, and I said, I leave her this winter and that next spring, that next June, uh, I think we treat 28 bears in June. And she never backed off of one. Matter of fact, it was the opposite. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I was 50-50 on, on even keeping her for the winter. And she ended up being an unbelievable dog. Yeah. I mean, she probably matured was probably the biggest thing right there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. She went, I think, you know, she was a little over two that next year. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was expecting a lot out of that one-and-a-half-year-old, which I – I expect them to do pretty well at that age anyways, but, you know, most of the time she was doing awesome. Just a couple bad bears, she'd come off. And uh, that that winter of maturing, she she came into it that next year. Yeah. Um, and while we were on pups, uh, and when we talked, he was talking about be- breeding the best of the best, I wanted to bring this up, and I got I got sidetracked in my own thoughts. Um <clears throat> When you're when you're breeding, Doug, I know we talked about um, what about what about build confirmation temperament. Um, what are some of them other things that that you're looking for? Yep. Um, for myself personally, I, I don't like a big, heavy, boned dog. I don't I don't like a I don't like a big, tall, heavy dog. I like a more narrow chested, good legs, good tight feet. Um, and maybe I would want something different if I lived somewhere else, but we got a lot of hills, a lot of mountains. And, um, I think them bigger boned dogs and heavier dogs, they, I think they get older quicker. You know, you take a streamline built dog, that dog, seven, eight years old, still going to go well, you know, where that for me, them bigger dogs, um, they get old quick. And, you know, they hard to run day in and day out. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you, you don't have one that has a big heart and pushes himself, you know, but as far as the build, I, I like a tight built, smaller, smaller dog myself. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I don't know, like uh, Rangeley, he's probably 55, you know, 58. Mm-hmm. Spider was a little bigger. He was probably 60, 65. Um, but but that's a that's a good build for me. Um, they they got to be generationally good, and I don't know if that's the right word for it, but I, I don't breed a fluke. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything against it, but I think you know guys like me and you and the guys that we know that hunt super hard. I mean, you're putting your whole life into it. I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give a dog two years, you know, two two and a half years of my life, hundred percent. I want the best chance possible. How many times can you do that from now until you can't go again? You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So, like. That that dog's brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, you know, I want an average of really good hounds of of what you're looking for, and and that's that's how I personally select a dog that's worth breeding. Um, they got to be good natured too, no no aggression, you know. I I can put my males in a box with strange males, and that's a lot to ask for, even if you got good dogs, but I don't. I don't allow any of that stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, and I, like I said, I'm, I'm constantly learning, and I've made a lot of foo paws over my career, and I'm sure I'll make more. But I'm trying to be more educated and make better decisions for my dogs. Um, but yeah, I really look at the litter mates, and then again, we got to go right back to what we just said. You know, are they getting in hands of the people that's going to hunt them? I want to exactly. see how that litter's doing. I do want to know, you know, the the dad and the mom don't have to be, you know, talking to Bart Rogers, and we did that podcast a year ago with him from Auburn University, you know, talking to Bart, they don't have to be superstars. A lot of your average dogs are the ones that produce the really good litters. Um, but their grandparents are probably, <clears throat> yeah, you know. I, w- I want to know what their parents do and their their aunts and their uncles and their their grandparents and their great and you know it's hard to track some of these days dogs back um, that far um, with the line that I'm hunting, but yeah, the litter mates are huge. That's that's one of the first things I want to you know talk about or find out about, and then you know back to the parents as brothers and sisters. What's that litter doing? And then I really think that ups your odds if, if you can do those two things. I think it ups your odds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of my best things out here, well, the two best males I've personally bred to is, is Spider and Rangely. And of course I have, I have some stuff out of Kurt's Taz dog too. And he was, he was a wicked reproducing dog. Um, he was a nice dog. Um, but like Rangely, he's got really tough black and, an old, old friend of mine in, in Maine, he's been a guide for 55 years and he won't take a pup if it don't have black pads. <laughs> and, and, and I don't believe in any kind of hocus pocus stuff, but um, that dog's never been sore footed. That Rangeley dog, he, he, he's tough. He can go every single day. Uh, if he hadn't lost his leg, he'd be nine this year. He, he'd still be right there with the other dogs. And, and he pa- he passes that on. <clears throat> I have three three dogs out of him, two different females, three different litters, um, and they all have tough feet. You know, yeah, that's that's a super good trait to have. Yeah, I and I'll talk, I'll hit on this real quick because I'm like you. I I like a dark pad. I think they hold up better. But you know, Shorty Gorm said something in one of the podcasts that made me sit back and rethink my position like mm-hmm. and he's a ho- he's a rodeo you know he run the rodeo and stuff and my sister my dad and my daughter all have horses they're horse nuts <clears throat> and there are horses with white hooves you know with the they're not they're not they're not black and you know short made the comment that you know those horses are just as tough if you look at some of the wild mustangs they've got white and it made me change my thinking I still mm-hmm. like the darker pad. That's what I would prefer. But I'm not as, um, like I said, my most of my dogs are mixed. They've got the black and <clears throat> a little bit of the white or the white in them. 
and I'm trying mm-hmm. I'm trying to breed for the the black. That's what I want. Um, but when Shorty said that, I I had to take a step back and rethink. Like, okay, well maybe maybe he's got a point, and I just want to bring that up as a as a like just think about that. Not me and you, but for the listeners, like the. Yeah. Uh, he made a he made a valid point. Like I said, I've been on you know round horses my whole almost my whole life too, and um, it just made me think differently. I'm like, mm, yeah. okay, I got it. Yeah, no, I ain't I ain't saying <clears throat> that's the way it is. That's just yeah, that's right. One of the old the old fellas told me, yep. you know, and you, you ever see a coyote with light pads, you <laughs> know, and if if you think of it that way, mm-hmm. and them guys are on every type of snow condition and 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 bare ground condition there is but uh yeah it's just a, a preference and the last the litter the bee litter the when i bred uh kate that was one of the things that i asked about i'm like mm-hmm. dark pads you know got dark pads and they're like yeah i'm like okay <laughs> so yeah i feel you i'm with you i'm on the same page yeah yeah, yeah. All right, let's hit on a couple more things before we run out of time we're gonna be chit-chatting all night um yeah. so chris and i done a podcast on rigging and um, I tried to hit on a lot of topics. Um, I'm not an expert at it, like I said, by no means. I've been very lucky with the success that I have had. I'll just put that there. But one of the things that I missed, and I did not mention because we run out of time and we got sidetracked. And I'm going to tell you my experience. And then, like, you guys rig a lot up there and um, when y'all were in Maine with Kirk and him. So... One of the things that I noticed early on, so I'm talking when I first started rigging 20 years ago with my old ring dog, um, is we hunted we we hunted a little different than we do now, and this is one of the reasons I've changed my the way I do things. So I'd rig a track, and literally I would sit there and wait on the other guys to get to me. So I'd rig it. And I'd pull up 100 yards or 200, whatever it took for him to, to start stop barking. And then I'd wait on them, and then we'd drive back down the road. And more so than not, I wasn't picking those rigs back up. Yeah. But one of the things, again, now I've, I've got 20 more years of experience in since, since those days. Ring would rig tracks more so than the bear. Like he would literally rig a track, go find the track and trail it where the dogs that I'm hunting now are more rigging the bear or where the bear's been through pretty quick. You know, it's not, it's not the same style of dog. Um, and when we were talking about that, I, we got off the podcast and I'm like, crap. So my thinking and my thought process is if you're rigging a track and you drive on and you turn around and come back, you know, 10, 15 minutes later. Um, and you're still rigging that track, that track probably crossed the road or was somewhere there close where it was holding the scent. Um, but I feel like more over 50% of the time, Doug, I, if I drove past a track and turn around and come back, I couldn't get it started. And now if I rig and you know, you can ask all the guys I hunt with, they get so mad at me. And maybe I've never explained this to them. Maybe maybe I've just done it because of my experience. But if I rig a track now, my dogs are coming off the truck. Like, I'm not waiting. I'm not driving down the road two miles and coming back or 400 yards and waiting. I turn them loose. What do you think? Yeah. I was hoping you didn't want a good answer. <laughs> I. Well, just being honest, I mean, I, I've I've done it a hundred times, uh, you know, um, or, or you know, you're you're on a bear race and you strike another bear and you say, "Well, we'll treat this one and come back here," and you pay hell to get it going. I mean, I ain't saying you don't, but um, I I don't know what it is if they locate it when they first hit it, you know, and they have it in their head, it's right there. I, I don't. Well, I think it's a tough one. I think it's a lot of things. Um, you know, if we want to break it down a little bit, um, first of all, you got to think that scent itself is decaying by the microsecond. Like as it's falling, like it's bacteria and it's literally decaying on itself. Um, and I never really give this a lot of thought until I started learning 
And like I said, maybe this is something I've kept to myself. But yeah, when you drive up the road, and let's just make a visual so people can see what we're what we're talking about. So we're driving up the road. You're you're driving up a road. On the left hand side of you, there is a there is a incline. It could be a ridge. It could be a bank. It could be whatever you want to call it. It's something that goes up. And then on the bottom side, just like we're driving down a mountain road, on the right-hand side, passenger side, it drops off in into a low point. And we drive through there. And if the bear's below us and it's early morning, the thermals are probably car- carrying that odor up. We all mm-hmm. can agree with that. That's pretty simple. Yeah. Um, if the bear's above us, um, depending on which way the wind direction, the barometric pressure, all the things that goes into play, and we could talk about that for days. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the bear may be right above the road and the dogs catch the odor, and there you go. But we drive down the road, like you said, go get our dogs, come back, load them up, and we come back. Well, if the bear on the bottom of the road, on our passenger side, the odor, and those thermals have moved, that odor has literally pushed up the mountain and it's gone. It's not there anymore. Unless you get close to that animal where you're getting that live scent from him. And we, um, you know, we talked about that too, about uh, when our dogs get proximity alerts in the police world, unless you get within that three to 400 yard range, and I'm not saying it can't be five or six, depending on the, the area you're hunting, you know, how the current's traveling, the wind direction, all that stuff. It could, it could change. I'm just saying 400. If you're not within 400 yards of the actual bear, then chances are likely you're not picking that up. Yeah. And then the bear that was above the road, um, again, thermals, did it take the, did it take it up? <clears throat> did did the, the air pressure push it a m- another mile out the road? You know, there's so many things that go on with odor that I think sometimes we don't even think about. You know, we just, like you said, we just drive by, dog struck, go get the dogs. We come back an hour later, the dogs aren't striking. We're like, we're dogs ain't worth a nickel. Well, mm. It's what I, this is what I tell my detection guys. Um, and when we're, when we're running for odor, whether it be narcotics, explosives, whatever, um, the dog's nose is only good if the odor is available. So if that odor is not available for the dog to smell, then you cannot expect your dog to find that odor. Right. And, and I won't go into detail there what I'm talking about, but, um, there are ways to uh, change the the velocity and the way that odor travels um, for us. Um, so I don't want to give that away. But does that make does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I've seen so many different things striking. I, I've seen bears before, and people are going to think I'm I got crap dogs, but. I've seen a bear before and drove by and they didn't strike and turn around, come back and they, they blow up like it was standing there. But I, I, I say the scent hasn't risen. You know, they didn't see the bear. I, I don't know as if the scent had time to, to come up to where they're rigging. Um, that's my excuse anyway. Um, but I've, I've been the third truck. I'm this one time in particular. I was a third truck and I had some guys here from out of state and my rangely dog blew up and I radioed to the front truck if they had had a strike at all and they hadn't. And I stopped and let rangely down and he went 200 yards down on the lower side of the road and he opened and I cut my side of the dog box and the guy says, what are you doing? I said, well, you, you should let your dogs go and we treat a bear. And then, then you have a time where you, you know they should have struck and they they didn't. So it's it's a tough one for me. If we could see odor, I think all of us's opinions and, and knowledge <laughs> would change. Yeah, yeah. If the, we could the, see it, the, the Alpha Four Hundred. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, one of the things that that I learned when I was um, working with um, the explosive guys a lot and training training dogs for some of the consulates overseas. Like, uh, they have a uh, a room in the facility that I was training at, and they fill it full of smoke, and they'll put certain things, um, you know, just a box, like a box. Um, 
let's just take a cardboard box, a two by two box, just two by foot by two foot, just a, an ups box. And they'll tape it just like at the seam. You know, they tape, they fold it up, tape it up the bottom, fold it up, put your strip across the top. And for us, we always think we'll just run, you know, run the dog across the top because that's where the odor's coming out. That's the seam, right? Well, you couldn't be more wrong about that. And I've seen it in this room too many times. That odor, that odor sinks and comes out the seams of the bottom. And Mm. so we, you know, that was a learning thing for me because I was always running the dogs wrong. I was presenting the the area that I wanted them to 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 sniff. Um, right. and it was not the right area to be presenting, presenting them, but yeah, I mean, odor is so tricky. And when you think, you know, you really don't, like you said, when you, you, the bear crossed the road, you should have struck on it and he don't. And then, you know, you, you come, you come behind the third truck, your dog strikes, you're like, what's going on? Like we just, you know, it's, it's an unknown. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's really incredible. <laughs> Even after you know 25 years or whatever it's it's amazing what they can do what they can smell you know we get to go in the main there we get to run off camera you know and you see (laughs) of course i got a different thought on that too um these guys say they take 14 hour 15 and 16 hour old tracks and i'm not saying to them that they're not but there's so much scent on that bear path that them bears have been living on. You know, a, a dog mm-hmm. that gets used to running down those bear paths, most of the time that I've seen personally, them bears ain't more than a half mile away laying down. And all them dogs got to do is get on that bear path. They're not taking a, the track. You, know, you saw, you, mm-hmm. you're not taking a track. Mm-hmm. You saw a bear you know, at 14 hours old, they're they're, t- they're going on a bear path and coming up with a bear last seen on the camera 14 hours ago. And I, my dogs have done it and I thought it was neat, you know, 11, 12 hours old, but did, you know, was it really, you know, uh, how far was the bear just off camera? You know, you don't know, but it is neat to kind of see how that works. I'll tell you a story, and this is going to go back to my canine stuff, my my ta- my canine tracking. So <clears throat> this handler is now retired, and he had a pretty good success rate of finding people, you know, surprisingly. And we go to training, and dog couldn't track a lick. And I, I'm, I'm being honest, like, couldn't track a lick. So it took me a little bit to figure out what was going on. So when we started using our Garmin's, so we, we all had like all of our group has Garmin's. Now we run the alphas. We run collars on the, the dogs hand, the handlers got the handheld, the tack team commanders always got an extra handheld. So we know where everybody's at. <clears throat> it's been a great tool and it's actually been a great training tool too, because I'm doing a lot of off lead stuff right now with our tracking group. Um, to show the guys how much of a hindrance they are to being attached to the dog. Um, you know, we're, we're laying, you know, thousand yard tracks, which is a half a mile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're just, I mean, we're just using 30 minutes. We only got eight hours to train, so I can't lay an eight hour old track. Right. So right. we're doing 30 minute old tracks and we're turning the dog off lead. The dog finds them usually within two minutes, under two minutes. Boom, 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 yeah. gone. And then put the lead on the handler with the lead and let him go find them. It's taken them 30. Uh, but anyway. I'm I, guessing, I'm, and I'm, I could be wrong, but just thinking about a dog on a lead, probably an inexperienced handler could, could turn a dog off. You know, this looks like the way I would go. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Instead of just trusting the dog's nose. And I'm um, the one thing that we, you and I have an advantage of is we know dog behavior. We see our dogs. We see them working. Yeah. These guys, the guys that I'm training have no dog hunting, bird, duck, bear, deer, coon, squirrel. They don't have it. And it, it yeah. takes years. <laughs> like it takes years for them to figure it out. But so back to the, to what I was telling you. So this guy, 
in training could not could not could not track a warm biscuit. And I'm like, how in the crap is he finding all these people? So we started setting up scenarios and started using the Garmin. Well, this is what was going on. Just what you're saying. This is the same thing that you're saying about those dogs just going down the path, getting close enough to win the animal and going to it. So what he was doing is he was walking around, and I proved this to him by the Garmin because we had the track layer holding the collar and going in a, in a straight line for 500 yards. And then I'd have him start the track. And, I mean, it looked like a jigsaw puzzle. I mean, he was left and right and a half a mile over this way and two miles over. I mean, it was like all over the place. But he was walking around enough to the dog actually got in body odor and was able to, to locate the person. So all he was doing was an area search on lead, not tracking. And he right. had been pretty successful at it. And that's exactly what you're explaining, Doug, is you're, the dogs are going hunting. They're going out in the direction that the bear went. They go 500 yards. Boom, there's the bear laying. Yeah. So they're doing an they, area they, search. They, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know how old even my dogs. I don't know how old of a track they'll take. I know they're colder nosed than a lot of dogs I've hunted with. But I don't know how old of a track they'll take. I think. You know, the the dew, the temperature, the pressure, and I think all that has to has a big part of it. Yes, it does, and um, yeah, there's a lot of things that, that play into it. And you know, I yeah, I mean, I don't want to step on my own nose, but I've seen some dogs in the past do some phenomenal work um, trailing. Mm-hmm. Um, most of it. Um, would have been snow related. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned like, I, I won't, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast, but yep. um, snow related where the dogs could come back the next day or the day after. Um, and, and again, that goes in, was it frozen the night before, you know, what moisture holds odor when it, when it thaws out, that releases that odor. I mean, that's a whole, like I said, that's a whole different podcast. Um, but I've seen some dogs do some phenomenal work over them over the years but now knowing what i know about scent and you know i've got my dogs out tracking you know at, at work and being able to see some of it and i do think our hounds are better i mean i i do think that but some of this stuff just kind of makes you want to scratch your head like mm. Mm, okay you know especially when the humidity's up i mean humidity's the two-edged sword yep. it, it holds moisture moisture holds holds odor but when that when that humidity starts to evaporate and the temperature starts to change and the sun gets overhead, like that changes the whole scent picture, and I can prove it to you a hundred times because I, I do it daily. But yeah, sometimes it makes you, and even myself, it's made me question myself. Like, yeah, maybe I maybe I was wrong about that, or maybe maybe I need to rethink my position. That's the best thing. I was rethinking my position. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. While we're talking about scent. And temperature, let's talk about temperature change. Um, so at the SCI conference, I was talking to um, Ross Blackwelder, um, and he's got the B&B Ranch Hounds. And we got in a short conversation, and he said something to me, and I was like, duh, I never talk about that, but I do see it. So Ross and I were talking about, um, now he hunts Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, you know, those, the areas out there. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. he said that one of the hardest times for him to trail to trail is when it's 30 degrees in the morning and 70 in the afternoon he said when you have that 30 and 40 degree temperature change throughout the day that it throws everything out of whack so i got to thinking about it especially during our training seat like september i I think your weather is pretty much like ours Um, yeah yeah so um september early september you may start getting those cool mornings you know, where it's mm-hmm. down in the, you know, 40s, 50s, and then get back up in the 80s. You know, so you're yeah. 30, you're, you know, you're 30 to 40 change. Um, And I do know, and, I, and like I said, once Ross and I started talking about this, it kind of made me step back and start thinking about things, you know, processing it. Um, You know, when that temperature starts getting above that, that 20 and 30 mark for me, like, yeah, we're not trailing. We're not trailing. 
Um, yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Do you do you see any effects like that, or do you? Yeah, I mean, I I obviously I'd way rather have the the early morning, you know, thirty forty degrees than than the seventy. Um, as far as the the change in the day itself, I I certainly will pay attention to it now. <clears throat> I off the top of my head, I can't think of you know a time when that happened and I noticed it because of the weather, but I, any day of the week, I, I take the cooler temperature. Yes. I, I personally, I personally think the, you know, you take, a, take a better track, you know, take an older track or, or, you know, do a better job on it um, with them cooler temperatures. Yeah. And I mean, all the way around, I mean, it helps the dog, the dog's, you know, olfactory right. system works better. You know, the hotter it is, I mean, the hotter it is and the more they're panting, that's their that's their sweat for us. Like, we yeah. get to sweat externally. They don't. Um, you know, I, the more they I've had one dog overheat, and now I don't. Boy, if it gets, if it gets over 75, you know, 80, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't intentionally go if it was 80, um, you know. And if it got hot, I'd pick them up because I've had one overheat, and, and uh, luckily I was close to a brook, and I I got his back legs cooled off, and uh, he come out of it. But yeah, the temperature things big for for me. Yeah, me too. I mean, all my guys, you can ask him like ten o'clock in the morning, I'm done. Like especially when you know, yeah. August or early season. Yeah, I'm done. Like I'm bear can run out in front of me, and I'm yeah. a, I'm a wave at him like. That you got lucky yeah. today, because I'm not. I'm not turning on him. <laughs> and and for any listeners that that haven't had a dog overheat, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I was told, and I, it worked for me. But cooling the dog's back legs off, they have main artery going down their back leg. <clears throat> you know, you wouldn't want to necessarily dip them in the water, but you you can splash water on their mm-hmm. back legs, and it helps their internal cool down quicker. Yeah, uh, and, uh, Garrett and I did a podcast on heat exhaustion. Yeah, and that's one of the things he said. He said, you know, and I've I've done this before. Um, I ain't uh, got to all the podcasts yet. <laughs> you got plenty of time. Um, yeah, but you know, that's one thing he says: do not do not soak them in water because they're you're basically just cooking them because they're you know they're thermal wrapped. Um, put right. them in put them in in the truck. Turn on the AC. Splashing. Yep splashing water keep getting their feet cool because that's you know that's yep. one of the main areas so you're doing it right um again do not do not douse do them not in water wrap a towel yeah. around them like i the thing i mean run a water hut like we've done it all i mean we've made those mistakes yeah. and you know we're so blessed to have garrett as a part of our group because he keeps us he keeps us lined out and he's probably helped us save a couple of our dogs over the last you yep. know four or five years so but no, you're you're exactly right. Um, that you just you know don't da- don't soak them. You just like try to get their noses cool and their feet cool. Yeah, yeah that artery is a main artery. Um, I can see where that would be beneficial. So, yeah. <clears throat> what else you got? Anything on your mind before we wrap her up? No, I mean uh, I'm sure I'll have a bunch more tomorrow <laughs> after I think about it. But I mean, um, you could, we could talk dogs all. We could talk dogs like. I'm, I'm could, around. Yeah, I mean, I'm good. <laughs> Especially you, you talking about uh, hunting snow. You know, we we get to hunt. Our season goes into the middle of November, and uh, the bear on on my back wall there. I don't know if you, you yeah, can't see, I can it, see it. Light, but mm-hmm. it's five inches of snow. Dogs around them six seven hours walking. Big big country. No roads. Um, it's a good time. That was an old track. That that was a fun hunt. That's a, another long story, but. And then we cat hunt a lot, so it's it's so different to see what they'll take. You know, these dogs will take a cat track that I know was made yesterday because I check them roads every day. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I know they wouldn't do that with a bear on bear ground. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't take that same track. But Yeah, somebody got to ask me, um, while, you, while you're on snow, let's, I'll throw a little synology out at you. Um because somebody was asking me about this the other day. Um, I had a guy tell me uh, that the dogs, if it's below freezing, 32 degrees, if it's below freezing, mm-hmm. 
eight minutes and you're not tracking. And I'm like, <laughs> mm, I don't know about that, but um, I'm going to test your theory. So I actually posted a reel uh, a couple weeks, I don't know, a week ago, a month ago, where we were out. I laid an hour old track. It was 32, 31, 32 degrees. It was right at freezing. Um, and Robbie had his Hanno hound and he ended up, you know, he run, it was a mile long too. Like the track was a mile long. Like I'd done it to the T. He, that was his certification track. So it was an hour old, a mile long. And everybody thinks that, oh, it was in the snow. You can see the tracks. Well, there was cross tracks where people had walked through some of the area that we had been in. There was deer tracks. I walked into a deer feeding area on purpose to come out of it, to give him some contamination. But, um, Anyway, you know, one thing that that once he told me this and I start again, I'm, my, my brain wheels are turning. I'm like, mm, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. We hunt. I mean, we hunt in cold weather. I mean, December, we do have some 50 degree days, but most most of the time it's, you know, 30 to 40 degrees is kind of the weather pattern. But <clears throat> snow, if you have a light fluffy snow that's got air pockets in it everybody know can you visually see what i'm talking about like it's like you're taking popcorn and dropping it. the fluffy snow yeah. those air pockets will hold odor mm. will hold it and if it freezes 32 degrees what what happens with molecules when they freeze they shrink what happens yeah. when they heat up they expand so um that those pockets will hold odor a lot longer than what people think or, you know, may think. I don't know. People probably have it figured out way before I ever did. Especially the guys out west that are line hunting and that stuff. I mean, they they probably know a lot more about snow than I do. But, um, yeah, when he told me that, I was like, mm, I, don't, I don't necessarily believe that. But I want to test it. I want to test his theory. So what we did that morning, it was 28 degrees when we went to training. Um, everybody got tracks that was 20 minutes old. That's it. And I know you bear hunters like 20 minutes old, you know, um, 20 minutes old. But when you're running, you know, 12 dogs, that's yep. five hours worth of training. Um, so 20 minute old tracks. And I will say <clears throat> that a couple of the dogs did not track as um, enthusiastic as I thought they would. And then other dogs, it was it didn't make a difference. Like it was just it was just tracking like normal. So it was interesting yeah. to see that um, the different the different style, the different dogs doing different things. But um, yeah, that theory to me is I shot it out the window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Doug, I mean, I, we kind of went all over the place with all kinds of training yeah. information and you know breeding and pups and everything else. But man, that's what that's what hound hunting's about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I I enjoy it and. I appreciate you having me on again. No, uh, we may come back around to you some other time, but I'm, yeah. I'm definitely, I'm going to make it a point to get up there and hunt with you and Kirk one time. Like, yeah. man, I just want to, I just want to watch you guys and learn and, and maybe y'all can teach me some stuff. No, it's, it's a good time. Yeah. We, we have good country. We get a lot of bears and, uh, it's a good time. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, thank you for helping us teach, train and learn. 